Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Circa. In this theater episode, we will be listing a lot of places, venues, and live performances in New York City. With that in mind, we're going to tell you a lot. But don't worry. There will be maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app. So whether you're in New York, heading there right now, or sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about the home of American theater, you're in the right place. This is what we do. So just sit back, put your headphones on, and enjoy the ride. Silence your cell phones, unwrap your throat drops, ready your applause, and give in to not being able to swipe to the newsfeed for once. Prepare to revel in American theater. And scene. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. There are film towns like L.A., music towns like Nashville, food towns like Chicago, and New York likes to go toe-to-toe with all of them. But one thing where we really take the cake? Theater. New York is a theater town, and in this country, New York is THE theater town. Sure, not the way it used to be, when there was only live entertainment, when everyone went to the show and there was no such thing as Netflix and takeout. But the legacy of treading the boards endures, and with it, the fabric of this city way beyond the stage. 
in New York, where everything is flapping round like laundry hanging out to dry. Theater spills into the streets, the subways, and into the slang and swagger of the place. In this episode, we're going to go back to the glory days, when theater caused riots and exploded culture, when theater made the town much of what we know and love. Since the beginning of this city, theater has seduced young, hungry actors all over the world to give up all comfort and sanity for a taste of the stage. Myself included. Cue the kick line. A quick look at theater today. These days, if most people have a choice between music, film, or theater, theater often comes last. But partly that's just because we don't realize theater is everywhere and has affected everything. Theater is more than Broadway. It's more than plays. It's the poet spitting poems on the corner in the theatrics of a Beyonce tour. It's how we order our food at a restaurant and how the server fills our glass. It's the kids playing the dozens on the corner. You saw Paul? That one. When I was in your house, I saw your father lighting up a cigarette and I stepped on it and he said, who turned off the lights? It's what makes a good story in the telling. It's politics. It's the news. It's what most of us are busy doing when we are dating. Rehearsing our lines, our text messages, like they were Shakespeare. But theater as we know it as a craft has become pretty small in this country. Out of all the art forms, it's the least accessible. It's the underdog. It can't be shared through your headphones or screens. You can't take it home and put it on your wall. You can't own it. You can't show up at the club and shake to its form. It's live. And then it's over. Which means it's often expensive. And unpredictable. And too often... It's terrible. Yep, downright awful. Even when you know everyone involved has spent all that time and money to rehearse every scene and memorize every line and make every costume and set piece, it still doesn't matter. It sucks. I can say that. I've been making theater for over 20 years. And I still love it and believe in it. Because sometimes... Sometimes. Theater is magic. Theater is dazzling. Theater is transformative. Theater will blow your socks off and make you glad to be human. Theater will rearrange how you think. And in New York, you have some of the best chances of catching that possibility. Whether on the biggest stage or smallest basement black box. It's a gamble. But like anything... You can stack the odds in your favor by knowing a few things. So here we go. Some New York City theater tips. Number one, know what's good. So what makes good theater? Necessity. And craft. That's it. And you can't cheat either one. Something about it has to need to be said, shared, spoken. And it has to be done well. That's often all it takes. 
Surprisingly, though, it's rare. What makes theater so truly special is it cannot be recreated. What you see is a once-in-a-lifetime performance. It will never be exactly the same. And unlike film, as the audience, you are directly part of a living ritual. When you see Hamlet on stage, for instance, and, spoiler alert, he dies at the end, after you feel the tragedy and weight of humanity's folly along with all the other people watching along with you, when the show ends and the lights come up, you get to literally clap Hamlet back awake into their actor's body. You are closing the sacred loop with your applause and presence. Sounds wooey-dooey? Whatever, it's real. And that's why it's magic. Number two, don't pass up the masters. He had to face me, hinted me half a billion, laughed at my losses. When there is someone who has honed their craft their whole life, whether a veteran Broadway soprano or a Butoh master, it will usually be worth your time. Look up the casts for any Broadway show you are considering to make sure you are getting the primo. And check out the presenting houses of international work, whether Brooklyn Academy of Music or theater festivals throughout the year at Lincoln Center, St. Anne's Warehouse, or the Public Theater. Number three. Believe the hype. People don't usually get excited about something for nothing. And when a show starts to take off and everyone's talking about it, you can trust it's doing its own magic. Like the wildly popular musical Rent that started as a workshop production at New York Theatre Workshop, a small theater, and grew into a Broadway phenomenon, running for 12 years and touring the world. Number four, do a little research. Google, what should I see in New York theatre right now? And you'll be amazed at all the guides listing the best plays on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. Don't worry, we're going to break that all down in this episode. Once you find a show on the list that speaks to you, check it out a little more. If you read a review, read more than one. Opinions vary wildly. And then take the risk, especially if you can get rush tickets. Number five. When you go matters. Actors work their butts off and, like anyone, have off nights and on nights. Thursday nights and Saturday nights are often the best. Opening nights can be wonky but are filled with magic. Just don't go the day after an opening night. It's often a letdown. Matinees can be convenient but are often lacking in some magic oomph. Just true. Theater can be an enormous risk for everyone involved. But when the risk pays off, it pays off huge. But before you take the plunge and get your tickets, it helps to know a few things about the history of theater in this crazy town. So let's take a minute to break down the different kinds of theater, how they began, and what they are now. Broadway. It's everything you'd expect. Expensive and perfect. Maybe even too perfect. The production will be through the roof. Will it leave you transfixed and raw? Altered forever? Probably not. 
Will you be entertained and thrilled like an amusement park ride? Most likely. If you love musicals, giant productions, set pieces that defy gravity and perspective and open like giant origami, this is your jam. If you want intimate human stories that will pulse through you and leave you shaking in the quiet of some dark theater, maybe not so much. But to deny its place in theater is to deny traditional French cooking when talking about food. Butter is butter. You can't underestimate its feat of greatness. Basically, if you've never been, you should go. And if the sticker shock is too much, consider rush tickets day of, sometimes for ridiculously good seats. Almost every theater offers them at their box office. And if you get there right when they open, you can often score some deals. But nowadays, there are digital lotteries. For a comprehensive list, check out Playbill. We'll put a link in the show notes. Broadway officially consists of 41 theaters, most of which are concentrated in the area around Times Square. Most of their productions are big musicals with giant casts and live music. They're like rock concerts with added story and amazing sets. The official designation to make a Broadway show is that it has to have 500 seats or more. While most theaters aren't officially on Broadway anymore, the name stuck as theaters made their way up from what's now the Bowery and Union Square in the late 18 and 1900s, looking for cheaper real estate. But let's go back to how we got here in the first place. Two tragedies really made Broadway and theater what it is today. A riot and a fire. Let's travel on back to the mid-1800s. Before the radio, before the telegram, before TV, before you could just sit on your couch and scroll through Instagram to get your dose of culture. When New York had wealthy patrons who lived in mansions on Fifth Avenue with butlers and maids and rooms just for billiards, and yet only blocks away, new immigrants lived packed in squalor in the infamous Five Points area of New York, fighting over bits of territory with increasing violence. Back then, theater was the main form of entertainment. For everyone. See, big theater houses have been a thing in this city since the beginning, starting in the late 1700s. Theaters were seen as public platforms where people could gather and complain about the state of the things. People came to socialize, drink, gawk, heckle, use the stories as political fodder. It was the original social media. Riots were common. But nothing was quite like the Astor Place riots. In some ways, you can blame some of theater's elite culture now on that deadly night back in 1849, when a riot over two Shakespearean actors divided the city, leaving dozens dead in its wake. I'd love to tell you that the riot was only about who could handle the bard's words better, evoking such love of the craft that passion spilled into a feverish punch. But, of course, like most things, the theater became the excuse of politics and class. Outsiders and insiders. The site of the riot was the Astor Place Opera House, built right off Broadway, to cater to wealthy patrons away from the bawdy crowds of the large theaters in the lower-class Bowery District just blocks away. 
Patrons at the Opera House were expected to wear gloves and coattails, be clean-shaven and stay hushed during a production. But for the working class, the very existence of the Opera House was seen as a downright provocation against the one place where everyone was welcome, the theater. Theater was still dominated by British actors, and a man named William McCready was visiting from across the pond, known for his particular genteel prowess, with Shakespeare. Enter Edwin Forrest, a muscled, impassioned American actor, popular with the working class and embedded in the Five Points gang scene. He also happened to excel at Shakespeare, but with the gloves off, you could say. A hometown hero, Forrest had a bit of a rowdy following, and when McCready came to town, it was the perfect excuse to air one's grievances to the British imperialism still hanging over the city. On the night of May 10th, 1849, both actors were slated to perform Macbeth, which just goes to show you, once again, that play is cursed. Three nights before the riot, Forrest's fans had taken over the upper balcony of the Opera House and thwarted McCready's performance by throwing rotten vegetables, ripping up seats, and heckling him the entire show. McCready wanted to scoot out of town, rightly so, but the American aristocrats of the day convinced him to stay and continue the production just one more night. Three days later, the fever pitch had mounted, and there were 10,000 people gathered to protest outside the Opera House by the time the show started. And, well, things got a little out of hand. In the end, the performance was a bust. McCready ended up escaping out of a back window, the military was brought in, Hundreds were injured, scores were dead, and a class division was solidified along theater lines. After that, opera became reserved for the upper class. Minstrel and melodramas for the middle class, and vaudeville and variety shows for the working and poor. Shakespeare was taken from the working class and thrust into the upper echelon, a distinction that survived until the 60s, when Joseph Papp of the Public Theater grandly returned Shakespeare to the people through his free Shakespeare in the Park, with not just white classical actors playing the roles, and the shows open and free for all. Come, sit on me. Asses are made to bear, and so are you. It's a beloved program that still exists to this day. James Earl Jones, Meryl Streep, Kevin Kline, Denzel Washington, Amy Adams, Anne Hathaway, Christopher Walken, Al Pacino, Jeffrey Wright, Sounds like the Oscars, but it's just some of the beloved actors that have graced the Delacorte Theater stage in Central Park, doing free Shakespeare for anyone willing to wait in line for a ticket. And if you are lucky enough to be in town during mid to late summer, you might be able to catch this year's production. After the Astor Place riot, Broadway moved uptown, first to Union Square and then Midtown, where it still resides. But there was still one more big tragedy in store. Since theaters were massive and constructed often of wood with heavy curtains and all the lighting powered by gas, kerosene, or candles, fires were common. The most popular theater in New York throughout the 1800s, the Bowery Theater, burned down four times in 17 years. Usually, the theaters would just be rebuilt 
or be an excuse to move uptown. But nobody was quite prepared for the consequences of the Brooklyn Theater fire in 1876. That fateful night, a large theater in Brooklyn was putting on a popular play for more than a thousand spectators. When a small fire began near the end of the show, stagehands thought that they could put it out easily without water, and the actors stayed in character even as the curtains started to catch and bits of the roof started flaming down. When the door was opened to let patrons out, the cold December air blew huge amounts of oxygen into the fire, causing an instant furnace. Most of the family circle, or cheap seats, were trapped and caught by awful smoke. 300 people died. Although the fire was across the river in the yet-to-be-incorporated town of Brooklyn, it sent shockwaves through the industry. Besides creating a reason to love a dubious substance called asbestos to douse everything in, the tragedy helped prompt a wave of electrification that ended up creating the phenomenon of Times Square and earning Broadway the nickname The Great White Way. For its dazzling array of electric lights lining the streets of tightly packed theaters. It's a nickname that in the last many years has taken on a whole new meme in Broadway's reckoning with better representation. And luckily, things are really changing up. But back then, the Broadway Theater District became the first place in the world to be lit up like a Christmas tree year-round, and it added to the appeal of the destination. Whether shows were flops or hits, it was always electric. Soon, Broadway became the place to see theater. The popular vaudeville and melodramas of the lower classes transitioned to the movies after the turn of the century, offering lower-cost entertainment than live theater, and many of the downtown theaters closed. But unlike anywhere else in the U.S., Broadway became a theatrical destination only on par with London, with people from all over the world coming to see the dazzlement of large-scale productions. All in all, through Broadway's glory days and speed bumps, with this last global pandemic part of its obstacle course, the show goes on to the thrill of thousands. Even if it doesn't inspire riots anymore. Hi, everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Grand Experiment and the Start of Off-Broadway What happens when, faced with a worldwide catastrophe, the government funds a theater program to put unemployed people back to work and bring entertainment to the forlorn masses? A flood of new works, new audiences, an entire industry and literal lives saved in the process. And what's the government response to that success? 
Shut it down, of course. We're talking about the Great Depression. This is the history of one of the greatest cultural experiments you may have never heard of. It's 1934, and things are looking grisly all over the country, but especially in New York and in the theater district most of all. With the Depression laying a wrecking ball to the entertainment industry, thousands are out of work, theaters are dark, spirits dim. As you might know, when the Depression hit, FDR established programs all across the country to get people back to work, building bridges and roads and reinvigorating agricultural wastelands. But he also invested in culture. One of these programs was the Federal Theater Project. Beginning first in New York, the program spanned from 1935 to 1939, all over the country, bringing theater to over 30 million people in more than 200 theaters nationwide, employing almost 15,000 people, and changing the face of theater forever. In New York, different projects were funded all over the city, including the Experimental Theater, Negro Theater, Marionette Theater, Circus and Vaudeville, Classical Theater, Suitcase Theater, Yiddish Theater. Suddenly, small productions were given support like never before. Stories that never would make it to Broadway were being told right in people's neighborhoods. With so many people out of work, theater again became a refuge of social gathering for every class. One of the most innovative forms to emerge was the living newspaper shows, where researchers would put current news into the form of plays to spread information to audiences. Think Trevor Noah live. But since much of the content leaned left, grumblings emerged from the government that these programs were being infiltrated by communist and radical influences. This was the beginning of the downfall of the Federal Theater Project. To top it off, huge strides were being made in black culture with the new funding, and some people weren't happy about it. Long before the civil rights movement and deep in the Jim Crow years, the Federal Theater Project distinctly prohibited racial prejudice for its performances or hiring, something that was extremely radical at the time. Congress eventually claimed racial equality forms a vital part of the communist dictatorship and practices. One Congress member was literally heard saying, culture, what the hell, let him have a pick and shovel. Yeah, not woke times. While the economy eventually rebounded, and Broadway entered its glory years of the 50s, the remnants of the Federal Theater Project remained. Perhaps you've heard the term off-Broadway and thought it meant a kind of less prestigious theater. Nowadays, off-Broadway just means any theater venue in New York City that seats between 100 and 499 people. The name officially came out of the 50s, in response to the soaring costs of Broadway as a way to have more pared-down productions and accessible shows. But I think its birthplace is really seated in the Federal Theatre Project's support of smaller theatre all over the city in the 30s that paved the way for thinking about bringing more theatre to more people. To catch some of the best off-Broadway these days, just look up what plays are trending in Time Out, or check out what's playing at the Public Theatre, or BAM, otherwise known as Brooklyn Academy of Music.
Off Off Broadway. In the 1960s, everything started exploding out of its seams. Rock and roll, poetry, politics, social upheaval, the tears in the fabric of the American dream. And theater was no different. Theater started popping up in basements, in bars, churches, in the streets. Theater was suddenly for everybody. Theater merged with dance, with conceptual art, with drag. Theater was for the wildest of imaginations, the avant-garde, the experimental weird shit, the communities on the margins. That theater was termed off-off-Broadway, as a rejection of commercialism. This is when the stage was suddenly not always a stage, when audiences weren't just expected to sit passively in the dark and watch a story unfold. This is when Ellen Stewart, a fashion designer for some of the biggest luxury houses in New York, including Saks Fifth Avenue and Bergdorf Goodman, started La Mama to help foster the performances of those making work who couldn't get jobs. Although it was closed by authorities 10 times in 10 years for all sorts of bogus reasons, operating first as a coffee shop, then as a club, and finally as a theater, it soon became one of the preeminent spaces for new work. It was the first place to premiere Buto master Kazuo Ono, known by many as the father of the Japanese physical art form that came out of World War II's atrocities. This is where theater makers from other countries came to the U.S. and made giant waves. Like Jerzy Grotowski with The Poor Theater, who was exiled from Poland for his evocative and physical work. Hardly a set or costume around, audiences were mesmerized instead by deeply visceral performances. Or artists like Charles Ludlam, who brought queer culture into the forefront with his The Ridiculous Theatrical Company, exalting the avant-garde by thumbing its nose at the lineage of traditional theater. Ludlum's shows were intimate, small, full-on productions, mixing satire, biting sexual politics, and fabulous antics into full-tilt hysteria. RuPaul or Pee Wee Herman probably wouldn't have been around if it wasn't for him. Nowadays, off-off-Broadway just refers to any works in a theater with less than 100 seats, though it still holds a certain edge in its description of being less traditional. Today, you can still go to La Mama Experimental Theater Club for some of the more interesting theater in the city. Or check out what's happening at Bushwick Star, Jack, or here, Arts Center. So, what's next? What's the most exciting theater I've been to in the last 10 years? Number one. A curated one-person-at-a-time romp through New York City's Chinatown, where I was given instructions through my headphones on my phone and then led through a scavenger hunt of titillating detail and drama. Thrust right into the action, I was chased by actors through stores and alleyways that got my blood thumping, led through underground crazy corridors I never knew existed, met in restaurants and parks by unassuming actors, enlivening a city I thought I knew into a historical scavenger hunt. Jenny Kuhn's Odyssey Project. Number two. 
a show by a magic aficionado who did a one-man play on the objects in our lives, utilizing the audience as all his other characters through immaculate instructions. I was picked out to be his would-be ex, and by following some skillful prompts, felt like I had performed in a whole play without one minute of rehearsal. In the end, I was crying and laughing along with everyone else, wondering how the hell he did it. Jeff Sobel, The Object Lesson. Number three. The wildly popular Sleep No More, immersive dance theater with immaculate sets you could spend the whole performance ensconced in. With much of the production running down stairways full of masked audiences after amazing dancers, I'm amazed no one died in the making. But I gotta say, it was pretty riveting. Punch drunks, sleep no more. Number four, a free performance in a beautiful church using the ancient Greek text of Antigone to confront the issues of our day with famous actors and politicians, followed by an extraordinary community feedback session that was more electric than Las Vegas. Theater of War, Antigone in Ferguson. The recurring theme, immersive, intense action with no stage, performances that demand the spectator to be more involved in the story itself. With COVID grinding everything to a halt, we've had to look again at what makes theater, theater. People got creative on Zoom, but everyone knew it was a placeholder, not a new take on the form. Because theater relies on being live and communal. With every generation, someone says, the theater is dead. It's too expensive. It's too niche. It can't compete with television, film, music. But theater always finds a way to keep going. Because we always need stories and experiences that engage us. We'll always want to be part of an audience of something in the making. New York City still attracts people from all over the world to come and live in little hovels of apartments and withstand all the stresses of this place just for the chance to make it to the stage. And let's be honest, most won't fully make it. That's why all the restaurants and bars here are filled with the most talented, entertaining service staff anywhere, with some restaurants even becoming their own attraction, like Ellen's Stardust Diner with its singing waitstaff. Unlike in most places, New York's a big pond with a lot of fish. Meaning, even if you are used to being the star in your hometown, likely you'll just be part of the big old theatrical Milky Way here, which will make you strive to be even better. Even brighter. Which will make you hustle till you hit your stride, or give up and join an accounting firm, only to once in a while entertain your coworkers over happy hour with your animated stories, and everyone will say, you should have been a performer and you'll smile politely and buy another drink. So if the theater is then dead, sign me up for the zombie apocalypse. You can't kill it. Here, it's everywhere. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to our theater episode for New York City. Now you've got an appetite for a show. Remember to check out the other episodes in this guide for deeper dives into the Big Apple's food, how to do it on a budget, and much more. You'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on the places in this episode, and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Los Angeles, Barcelona, Mexico City, Hawaii, Iceland, and many more. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.